Okay, and next week we're going to be looking at Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Our text is Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 34. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, on your devices. We also have it wonderfully printed in our bulletins. Last week, we saw Jesus' loving heart for his own. Now Luke is going to bring into view our hearts. How prone our hearts are to falling prey specifically to the destructive power of Satan. He's going to show us our hearts and how prone we are to fall prey to the destructive devices of Satan. Let me ask us this question. Do we realize how much of what's wrong in our world, what's wrong in you and what's wrong in me, is the schemes of Satan? I know our unbelieving neighbors don't. When the nightly news is bad news, and they list all the causes for whatever crisis going on. Never once does Satan make the list on the news, does he? No. The world doesn't believe that Satan is any danger to us. But what about us who believe? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today, he's writing this many years ago, <laughs> is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. We have become so psychological in our attitude and thinking, we are ignorant of this great objective fact. The being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser. I think Jones is right. Do you think that most of the church has forgotten Satan? Do we think that he's only at work in third world countries or in Ukraine or the bad part of town? Do we forget that Satan ultimately hates Jesus? Hates that Jesus defeated him at the cross. And Satan's only way to get back at Jesus is to attack the people Jesus loves most. Friends, there is a bullseye on the church, on this church, and on you and I. And our hearts are easily led astray by the evil one. That's why we talked about that in the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. That's the bad news. Satan is preying on us right now. What's the good news, Joel? We want some good news. Satan prays on us, but Jesus prays for us. That is the good news. Jesus prays for us. And this is the encouraging news that we discover in Luke chapter 22. Are you ready for the gospel? Amen. Amen. Please turn then to Luke 22 if you're not there already. Luke chapter 22. We're going to pick up in verse 21, actually. 21. I'm going to back up a few verses, what we looked at last week. Now hear the word of our God. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. This is Jesus speaking. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined... But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you 
become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater one, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Father, we come, and we come confident not in our prayers, that, but that Jesus takes our feeble prayers and wraps them up and presents them as a glorious package to you. Heavenly Father, we're asking that you might pour your spirit out, rend the heavens and come down, make the man standing here go away, that in fact our Lord Jesus might be made present in our midst that we might know him and love him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever looked forward to a holiday meal? We all like holiday meals, right? And the whole family is going to be there. Maybe you planned it. You're the one who actually put together the dishes, invited people over. You put a lot of thought into who would come, how they would enjoy each dish. And then the family shows up, and they have no idea what this was supposed to mean, this meal. With a smile, you announce how happy you are. Everyone has come over. You eagerly watch them eat every dish that you prepared. And then you see uh, one family member is like entirely indifferent. Doesn't even seem like they want to be there. Oh, and then a debate breaks out with everyone pointing fingers at one another over some matter. And immediately afterwards, after the final course, there's a ridiculous argument over who in the family is the best at something. (laughs) And no one seems to get how much this meal meant to you. And this is your family. (laughs) If you can relate to that, Jesus gets you. Jesus gets you. Because that's Jesus' experience in Luke 22. Jesus has just eaten this final meal before the cross with his little family of 12 that he's brought together. Jesus loves these 12. He loves them so much he's about to go to the cross and die for their sins. And his whole focus has been spending time with them, serving them. He told them last week that he earnestly desired to have this last supper with them. Jesus loves his family despite all their failings. Friends, yours and my greatest comfort is that Jesus loves us more than we love him. Let me repeat that. Your greatest comfort is that Jesus loves you more than you love him. And Luke alone, he seems to really highlight Jesus' love at this meal. He reveals that Jesus, what he was experiencing. We don't tend to think at the Lord's Supper, what is Jesus experiencing as we come here? We tend to just think about us, right? 
Luke says, no, we need to think about how much Jesus loves for us to come to this table. His heart looked forward to this meal. It's partly because Jesus wanted to bring an end to this Passover, the Passover meal they've been celebrating for 1,500 years. It was a bloody sacrifice. He wanted to put that aside, and he wanted to institute what we have in front of us, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, which represents his body and his blood, which would be shed on the cross. And he wanted to do that so they would know that they were being brought into right relationship with his heavenly Father. Realize that this is more than just a well-thought-out meal. Jesus is actually putting himself on the table. And his family totally misses it. To a man, they're only thinking of themselves, not himself, spread out on the table for them. Yet Jesus still loves them. Isn't that encouraging? There's no resentment, no reluctance, no rage in Jesus at this meal. Despite the fact they give him every reason to get upset. Do you realize that Jesus is never, 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 never half-hearted towards you? Never. That's what we find here in Luke 22. Even as Jesus gently exposes our wayward hearts, as we see in these disciples, and how we're prone to believe in Satan's life, lies his plan for our life better than his. We are prone to believe in Satan's plan for our lives and not Jesus. And we hear about how God has a plan for your life. Well, so does Satan. We hear about Jesus' desire to be at this meal with them. Satan has a desire for you to become a meal. You realize that these two desires, Jesus' desire and Satan's desire, really is just playing out on, on this world stage. The world is a playing field where folks let one of these two desires direct their whole path of life. One path leads to glorifying and enjoying God forever. The other is everlasting destruction. And it's so easy to get off this path. Let a desire from Satan pull us off into bypath meadow, as Pilgrim's Progress talks about. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. <laughs> Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above should be our daily prayer we see these disciples I just read about it right aren't you actually thankful as you come and read this text and they're pointing fingers and then they're who's the greatest and one's a double crosser aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't pick 12 guys who had their acts all together <laughs> I am nobody else here apparently is I am I'm so happy I can open my Bible and what do I find a bunch of strugglers a bunch of strugglers who Jesus picks, who Jesus chooses. I can relate to Peter who's constantly taking his foot out of his mouth and inserting the other one, right? I'm so thankful that you have 12 men who are prone to bicker over things that don't matter, things that don't matter ultimately. What I'm more thankful for is Jesus' response to Peter and these 12. How does Jesus respond? With love for weak sinners. And I got three P's for us if we like alliteration. We're going to see that Jesus' love is first seen in Jesus' posture, next in Jesus' promise, and lastly in Jesus' prayer. First in his posture, second in his promise, and third in Jesus' prayer. Now I wanted to look again at Jesus' words to Judas, 
Judas, who had double-crossed Jesus. We saw at the beginning of the chapter. And he's just waiting to duck out so he can report where Jesus is going to be to these people who want to destroy Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And he says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. Jesus drops the first bombshell. Crisis is about to come. God has foreordained for him to go to the cross. It's God's plan. But it's going to begin in the worst way. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. Some of you know betrayal. You know betrayal. And you fear it worse than anything of all. You know, only a friend can betray. It's why it's a worse knife, stuck in the back and then twisted. Michael Card says, Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. It began earlier in this chapter, and how did it begin? With Satan entering into Judas. Satan had been waiting 18 chapters, by the way. If you've been going through the Gospel of Luke, I know we've been going through for years, it seems. <laughs> 18 chapters for an opportune time, and he found it. Judas is his man. Now, it is not that Satan invaded Judas. It's that Judas invited Satan. Luke told us that Judas desired money. Judas loved money more than Judas loved Jesus. And when you love anything more than Jesus, you know what you're doing. You're putting out the welcome mat. Come on in, Satan. Come on in. That is Satan's desire. That's that path. You see what I'm talking about? And Jesus is aware of all this. And let us remember, Jesus is fully man, just like he's fully God. In fact, he is more human than you and I are because he's not tainted by sin. That means Jesus' heart at this table, with Judas right across from him, is more sensitive to betrayal than you and I could ever know. Jesus is super sensitive because his heart has never been hardened like ours when we've been betrayed. Jesus senses that Judas doesn't want this meal, doesn't want his mercy, only wants money. And Jesus says, woe to my betrayer. Which means it'd be better for this guy if he had never been born. Jesus knows Judas has no future and no fondness for him. But Jesus is long-suffering. Long-suffering. Does not Jesus' heart astonish you? Jesus welcomes him to this table. A man doomed to die has no future and Jesus doesn't care. He wants to still love him all the way to the end. Friends, we're only scraping the surface of our Savior's sympathy. Because at this point, all the rest of them are about to fall for Satan's schemes too. They go from questioning each other, which one of you is going to betray Jesus, to giving praise to me, I am the greatest. No question. It's me. It's not you who, it's me. I'm the greatest. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. <laughs> What do you think of this response to their rabbi's warning that he's about to be double-crossed, betrayed to death? <laughs> this crisis, which should be breaking their hearts, what does it beget? Disputing, domineering, divisions. 
All are arrogantly asserting their own awesomeness. I'm so great. Not you. Here's Levi. Lauding how many lepers he healed. More than you guys. James over, but I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm the best. He was like, shut up, you guys. I am the water walker. <laughs> None of you got nothing on me. Ultimately, you know what's happened here? They're trying to figure out who's going to be the top dog. Take Jesus' spot when he's gone. They're all grasping for what they should not have. And it shows they're still blind to Satan's schemes. This is his oldest trick. This is Genesis chapter 3. Satan says, go on, grasp for what isn't yours. You will be like God. And Adam and Eve do, and what's the result? <laughs> the first ever marital dispute. Adam throws his wife under the bus right away, right? And Adam and Eve are divided just like these disciples. Friends, when disputes happen between believers, it's Satan's schemes. It's Satan on the attack. You need to keep that out in front of you. And you got a dispute with another believer, some troubles with them? It's Satan's work in the first place. Don't be deceived and miss out on what is ultimate. There is something much bigger happening here. There is a grand battle happening between Satan and Jesus, our Savior. It's a supernatural, cosmic battlefield going on. And you and I, we're actually the battlefield upon which this is being played out. This is because Jesus can't defeat Satan, or Satan can't defeat Jesus head to head. Satan found that out in the wilderness back in Luke 4. And it makes Satan hate Jesus more and more. So what does Satan do to get at Jesus? He seeks to destroy those Jesus loves most. He divides them, brother against brother, sister against sister, husband against wife. Satan says, you be out for you, look out for number one. And he wants to destroy you with your pride in order to hurt Jesus. That's the game. And we continue to fall for Satan's oldest trick. Because why does he need to change it? It continues to work, doesn't it? Again and again. These disciples were Jesus' closest companions for three years. They heard his teachings about the kingdom of God. And now crisis comes and they're completely unprepared. Why? Because they all took their eyes off him and put their eyes on me. Leon Morris writes, It's sad that with Jesus so close to the cross, his most intimate disciples were so far from his spirit. What amazes me as I was meditating on this text is, yet in love, Jesus doesn't scold them here on this final night. He wants to encourage them. I'd want to scold these guys. You realize what I'm about to do for you? And you're, really? No, Jesus wants to encourage them. And he directs their eyes back to himself. Verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table? or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is saying to every disciple, you're not to act like the rulers of this age. You want to be great? Take up the posture of the youngest. 
And in this culture, youth was not idolized like it is today. Okay, that's another sermon later on. No person in their 50s or 60s has joked about, oh, I'm 29 for the 30th time, like I heard somebody say the other day. Jesus says, you want to be great? Look at my posture. Look at my posture. I'm the head of this table, right? I'm the one who set up this meal. I just served it to you. Did you notice my wardrobe? I'm wearing a servant apron. Oh, and I got a towel. You know, Jesus had just washed all these disciples' feet. And Jesus says, I am, ego ami, I am among you as one who serves. You catch that? Let that sink in. Jesus is the I am, the ruler and creator of the entire cosmos. And he entered into his creation in a time-space history to serve them. This is incredible. The greatest leader of all comes into their world to serve them. Do any of our public servants do this? Can you imagine? Can you imagine President Biden or Donald Trump coming to your door and knocking, showing up at your house, saying, hey, can I come in? Oh, sure. Come on into my house. I need to go in your kitchen. And then they go and make you a wonderful meal. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Picture that. And then after they prepare you a meal and serve you, then they put on a towel and say, may I wash your feet? Can you even imagine one of our presidents doing that? Anybody here? If your brain hasn't exploded at this point, I got something more. Remember what Jesus said long ago in Luke chapter 12, verse 37? When we get to glory, when we arrive in heaven, you know what Jesus is going to continue to do? He's going to continue to serve you. All eternity, Jesus is going to be donning an apron and serving you. Even as we worship him and glorify him and enjoy him. You see why Christians ought and can and should be happy to participate in serving one another serving each other. If we appropriate that the I am desires to serve us, what then becomes our desire? If we take that into the core of our being, when our eyes just take in how much God loves to serve us, we see it as our great privilege to serve others out there in this world. We're actually going to be starting leadership training soon. What should we be looking for in our leaders? They should lead us in serving others. As we see Jesus in them, then we are compelled to do the same. And our eyes are fixed on the posture of our servant Lord. We're not going to come to church thinking, hmm, what am I going to get out of the service today? No, we're going to be thinking, who can I come in here to encourage, to love? What neighbor, what friend, what brother or sister can I just help bump them towards heaven, encourage their hearts? You can imagine what Jesus would do in our fellowship meals. Where would he be? Where would he be sitting? Sam, Jesus would be beating you out to clean up the cheese on the floor from last week. That's what Jesus would be doing. Leon Morris says, well, what Jesus wants us to know here, what is greatness? What is greatness? Faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. Faithful service in a lowly place is true greatness. And Jesus doesn't stop with the encouragement. He moves on to Promise, our second P. 
You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I really love this text. Because <laughs> some of us are prone to think that our Father's focus is all on our failures, right? Not true. Not true. Jesus doesn't say, guys, uh, thank you for ruining this last meal that was supposed to help you remember me. No, he says, guys, thank you. This meal helped me remember all the good times I had with you. <laughs> Isn't that just astonishing? <laughs> he says, after this meal, you know what I'm remembering? All the times you guys stuck it out with me. And you're going to be blessed for it. You're going to get a kingdom. I promise. And for all their failures, actually, these guys did stick it out with Jesus. Here they are. How many times did the religious leaders attack Jesus? And they stuck by him. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. They had every reason to leave when the crowds walked away from Jesus. When he began preaching, love your enemies. When public opinion took a nosedive. When Jesus began preaching what the kingdom of God was about. When folks were saying, you're not still following that Jesus guy, are you really? <laughs> Some of us have stayed with Jesus through trials. I hope you find this encouraging. Your relatives mock him. Your co-workers use his name like a curse word. And Jesus' people are accused of being difficult or not affirming of others in this age. Actually, if you've been a part of this church for long, you, you know what I'm talking about. How many trials have we endured here? <laughs> How many have left us? We survived COVID, <laughs> a lot of attrition, low numbers. It's been hard work, hasn't it? Coming here Sunday after Sunday, all the things we've been doing to try to turn an old bank building into a church, into a place of worship. We're not even done yet. But we're doing it because we're sticking with Jesus. That's why we're doing it. Jesus says, I assign. And this is a really rare Greek verb. It means covenant. That's why I'm using the word promise here. Jesus is saying, and I promise you for all your sticking it out with me through thick and thin, guess what? You get a bigger table than this in glory. Actually, you're going to be telling them, you're going to be the founders of the New Testament church, and you're going to have glory beyond what you can imagine. They're getting a kingdom. And by the way, that includes anybody who's a disciple. The Father is pleased to give you a kingdom. He's smiling. Can't wait to give it to you. J.C. Ryle says, Let us leave this passage here with the encouraging thought that the wages which Christ gives his believing people will be all out of proportion to anything they have done for him. Their tears will be found in his bottle their smallest desires to do good will have been recorded. Not a cup of cold water will lose its reward. So we've seen Jesus' heart for us in his posture, in his promise, and now we see it in his prayer. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I know some of us make funnies about people who have a southern accent. 
forgive us, my southern friends. I know there's a few of you here. Forgive us. Actually, I talked to a friend uh, from South Africa last week. We'd been in Mississippi and all, and he greeted me with a fake southern accent. <laughs> he didn't do it justice. Actually, I told him he sounded more like an Indiana hillbilly, <laughs> but I digress. My point is that you southerners, you have a beautiful idiom because you can distinguish between the plural you and the singular you. If you're talking about you as a group, you say y'all, just like the Greek does here. Jesus addresses Peter. Let's back up. First, he addresses him, though, as Simon. And he doubles that for emphasis. Simon, Simon. Joel, what is that all about? Why is Jesus addressing Peter by his pre-Christian name? Because Peter still has old nature leanings. Footholds where Satan can get in. Pull him by his desires. Jesus is addressing him, Simon, Simon, because he wants Peter to see his weakness. And Jesus says, y'all, because of the weakness of all the others, that makes them also easy targets. Targets, let's just be real about who Satan is. He's a supernatural, cosmic, evil force who can and will overpower them. Satan wants to destroy this fledgling church of 12 before it can even begin its rescue mission, the greatest rescue mission in human history. And that means we are also targets. And maybe all the more because Satan's time is running out. I believe Satan is as busy as God today because his time is short. But Jesus tells Peter that he has prayed, or tells Peter that Satan has prayed. That's actually the Greek here. Satan has prayed. Satan has brought a prayer to God that he may have all his disciples. And Satan does this, right? Remember Job? We're talking about that this morning, Marion. Satan is praying, let me have him, God. When we think about all that Satan is up to in our world, do we ever stop to think that Satan is on his knees right now, praying that he may have you? Satan wants more than anything to get a hold of each and every one of us. Why? What does Satan want to do with us? He wants to sift you. And this is violent language. This is violent language. Wants to sift you like wheat. How much greater, think of in perspective, the miller, the guy who, who takes the wheat. How much greater is he than the little wheat kernel? That's how much more powerful Satan is than you. He has the power and the desire to break you apart and to tear you down to absolute nothing. And Satan is praying that he might prey on you. That thought crushed any of our minds this morning. That Satan today wants to pray on you and he's praying about it. Do you wake up recognizing that your war is not against flesh and blood, those people who aggravate and irritate you around the dinner table or your neighbors or the people we see on the news or the people in that part of town? Our war is not against flesh and blood. Do you realize that Satan has a plan for your life? to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to have me. Satan wants to have you. And C.S. Lewis, he once talked about the two great dangers we face in our age. Either we make too much of demons and we see one behind every rock and tree, or we live as though they don't even exist to their great delight. We see it every day. People going to hell, never once considering. 
Satan is preying every day on us, which is why I love, love, love verse 32. Our final point. Jesus' prayer. Jesus says, But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you, singular, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love this. Jesus says, don't worry that Satan is praying because I have prayed. I already have prayed for you. And you will fall. You will turn away. But your faith won't fail. Your faith won't fail. And afterwards, you're going to be able to rally all these guys back to me. Satan was poised to destroy. And Peter looks at Jesus after Jesus has said these wonderful words to him. And he says in verse 33, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for praying for me. No, he doesn't. Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. The greatest. Peter has no concern for Satan's praying and no gratitude for Jesus praying. Why is that? Pride in myself. Yes, I'm about to face the greatest crisis of my life, but I'm with you, Jesus, because I'm Peter. Remember, you gave me that name. I'm, I'm not Simon. I'm the Rock. I'm Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I'm scheduled to battle Superman in the next movie, Jesus. I'm Rocky. Adrian, I can... This is ridiculous. Bring him on. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'm ready for prison. I'm ready for death. Peter has the same problem we have. <clears throat> Peter is self-reliant, not Savior-reliant. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Friends, none of us are capable of standing on our own two feet through the trials that are going to come, through the temptations that are going to come at you this week. <clears throat> All of us here, we see in this text, are capable of double-crossing, of disputing, of divisions, and even denying Jesus. I know some of us come to church, and you're hearing Jesus say something to you right now, and we don't believe him. You ever come to church and you hear Jesus say something, and you're like, I don't believe that about myself. I have. Jesus knows you better than you know you. And you need to hear what Jesus says here. You can believe him now and repent, or you can find out later, because God will reveal your weakness. You may recall Presbyterian pastor Andrew Brunson, who made national news a few years back, the Christian pastor in Turkey, arrested wrongly, charged with terrorism. They're going to give him three life sentences. Uh, Brunson said he initially had bravado towards persecution. He was like, bring it on. And he writes, I'd expected from reading biographies, from other stories, from my own personal experiences with God in the past, that I would have a real strength of strength and joy and a sense of God's presence. I could do it. And then the big metal door in a foreign country slammed shut in his face. The bolt turned. And with a year, he was breaking down physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. He lost control. He was at utter despair. He was ready to take his own life. It felt so far from God. His heart was revealed in that crisis. <laughs> Christians are not immune, and some of us know the dark recesses we can go into in our lives. 
God brings trials. Westminster Confession 5.5 says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. Oh, and they're not done. They, they, they get it all covered. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sins and for sundry other just and holy ends. <laughs> for all kinds of reasons. Jesus allowed Pastor Andrew and he also allowed the Apostle Peter to fall in order to show their pride that they might be more Satan-resistant, less self-reliant, and more Savior-reliant. I need to land the plane, I know. But here's your take home. Turn to Jesus this week. Turn to Jesus now. If you haven't turned to Jesus, don't delay. The devil wants you. He's praying right now. There's a story of the three junior varsity demons who are being trained by Satan to destroy the souls of men. Satan says, All right, what if I let you visit earth for a day? How will you do it? What strategy? The first demon says, I will trick men by saying there's no heaven. Satan says, that's not going to work. Every person's hardwired for heaven. This hope makes them immune to that. Second hears this and suggests the opposite. He's like, ah, I'll tell them that there's no hell. Satan shakes his head and says, no. Every person has a conscience about what's evil. They know they will pay for that. That won't work either. A third demon, he's like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Can't trick them into thinking there's no heaven. We can't trick them into thinking there's no hell. Oh, I'm just going to whisper into their ears, time. You have plenty of time. And Satan says, bingo, bingo. Convince them they have all the time in the world. Don't fall for that. I watched a young man die yesterday. Never saw it coming. People we love never saw it coming. My not yet dear Christian friend, Jesus says to you, today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Talk to somebody after the service. Talk to me. Talk to Dave. Secondly, remember that Jesus is praying for every believer. Read Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34. Write those down. Jesus is praying for each and every believer. That's our great encouragement. Jesus holds forth his nail-pierced hand in prayer to the Father and says, Father, forgive this one. Father, encourage this one. Father, give this one more spirit, more of your spirit. And the Father sees these nail-pierced hands. You know what he's answering his prayers? Yes. That be encouragement also for us to pray. Ask yourself. How is my prayer life? And if you say my prayer life's great, you'll be the first person who's ever said that to me in their lives. I've never heard anybody say my prayer life's great. We need to be daily on our knees praying. Praying that God will bring the powers of heaven to bear on all the situations, all the mess all around us. Ask yourself, what's stopping you if you're not praying? Come to our prayer meeting today. We're going to have one at 4 o'clock today. Do you want to see the church make a dent in Satan's work and in the lives of our families and the lives of our communities? And lastly, remember that the kingdom of God is going to prevail despite all our failings. We're no different than these 12. That's the good news. That is the gospel. 
The good news is not our faithfulness, our loyalty, our love. The good news is Jesus' heart, his faithfulness, his loyalty, his love for us. And we're all going to be saved because he is interceding on our behalf. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for loving us, for looking down on us in love and sending your son to take on our flesh, to walk through the miseries of this life, to stand up against every temptation, to defeat our great enemy, Satan. And we have great confidence that as long as we hold on to Jesus, he's holding on to us, and that's the good news, because our grip is weak. I pray that you will help us to take up the appropriate posture this week that will take hold of Jesus' promise that he'll never leave or forsake us. And we also ask and pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be more and more a people of prayer, looking forward to this privilege of participating in the greatest rescue mission in human history. We want to see many people come to know Jesus, and we also want to see ourselves discovering more and more his heart for us and your great love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.